Uh, This is John chapter 17. I'm going to read the whole chapter from the New American Standard. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorify thee in the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. And they've kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. And the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee. And they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me. For they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine. And thine are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou gavest, thou hast given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, And these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, to think about the unity we have with you and your Son, the unity that you have together and how you've brought us into that and all that it means. It is a great joy, Lord. We think about your marvelous grace that we sang about and spoke of and prayed about this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. 
how you've done all of this and you've brought us into this wonderful union with you and the Godhead, Father. It is an amazing thing to think about and how it will grow throughout eternity, how we love that, how we love to hear the life and peace-giving words spoken here by the Apostle John as he recorded them. Help Tom to preach them to us in truth. Help us to grow more like Christ as we come to know you more truly as you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If you've uh, been with us lately, you know that we've been here in John 17 now for quite a while. After this morning, we will move on to the final chapters of John's amazing gospel account. But, but for the next little while this morning, we're going to consider what it means for us as the people of God to live in this prayer. This prayer that Jesus prayed to His Father the night before He died in our place. A prayer that many Christians throughout the centuries since Christ's ascension have considered to be the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. I want to start by saying one more time, a little more emphatically this time, that you and I will not and cannot answer this prayer. Jesus wasn't addressing His disciples when He said these words. He wasn't addressing us. He was addressing His Father in the hearing of His disciples. And this was just very shortly before He would go to the garden, probably within minutes. And He would pray most earnestly that if it be possible that the cup be removed from Him, that God would remove it. But He you got to remember, God said yes to His prayer because His prayer was, if it be your will. And it was God's will from the beginning, from before time began to send Jesus to the cross for us. Now, the fact that Jesus prayed this prayer to His Father does not at all mean that this prayer gives us no- nothing to do. <laughs> Quite the opposite Jesus made sure His disciples heard it. He made sure John recorded it and the Spirit preserved it because the glorious truths that Jesus declares to His Father in this prayer are to control and to define every single thing that we do every day. As I read verses 13 and 19 once again, I want you to listen for what Jesus says about His purpose for praying this prayer and His mission for His disciples while they remain here in this lost and cursed world after His departure. He said to His Father, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they, the disciples you gave me, may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. 
Now, if you'll notice, the phrase, the world occurs eight times in those seven verses. That's the highest density of that phrase anywhere in the Bible. Jesus directed this prayer to his Father, but his great request in this prayer is that those whom he was sending into the world as his agents and ambassadors in every age would have his joy would have His joy made full in ourselves as we go about that greatest of all assignments. See, we were saved to be sent. We were saved to be sent into a world that hates us because it hated Him. We were saved and sent to grab sinners who were as lost and dead as we once were by the hand and to introduce them to the One who is life indeed. Some will come with us. Most will not. But beloved, Jesus intends for us to have His joy as we do His work. Let me say that one more time. Jesus intends for us to have His joy as we do His work. If either half of that has not been your experience in your walk with the Lord, either either you have gone about the work of Christ without joy, or you have simply abstained from doing the work of Christ, this prayer unveils everything that you'll need to know and believe so that both of those things will be true in your actual experience day by day that you'll have His joy in doing His work. As we consider the immeasurable impact of these truths on our daily lives here and now, I want to say again, let us bear firmly in mind that every detail of what Jesus requested in this, in this prayer is for His, for His Father to accomplish. See, we're just instruments. <laughs> and it's not the instrument that makes the music. It's the musician. This prayer is about our union with God and with one another in Christ. A union that is being miraculously protected and perfected by God the Father even now. That union defines and controls absolutely everything that you do every day if you belong to Christ. My kids, when they were younger, used to say to me, Dad, why do you have to make everything spiritual? And my answer was always the same. Everything that matters is spiritual. Because everything that matters is wrapped up in our union with Jesus Christ. Anything that falls outside of that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm going to show you uh, where we're going here with my outline. And then uh, it's pretty simple. Living in this prayer is all about how your union with Christ completely redefines three things. First, your relationship with the church. Secondly, your your relationship with the world. And finally, your relationship with yourself. The relationship, the union into which God has brought you together with all the other saints that He is that the Father has given to the Son defines everything about those relationships. First, your relationship with the church. 
Three times in this prayer, Jesus asks of his Father, quote, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's talking about everyone, not just his disciples, but everyone in every age who would come to faith through the testimony concerning Jesus Christ, that they may be one, even as we, the Father and the Son, are one. I said this before, but that is not two unions. It's one union. It is one marvelous unity that binds us together with each other and to God. All believers bound up together with God in Christ. And there is no such thing as unity in isolation. You cannot experience close relationship with God and usefulness to God apart from close relationship with the people of God. That doesn't mean that God never calls a Christian into circumstances that limit his access to other believers. The man who wrote this gospel spent the the last part of his life exiled to an island called Patmos from which he wrote, received, and wrote the book of Revelation. But he wasn't by himself on that island. And he definitely had some connection with other believers. That's how we got the book of Revelation. God may limit it at times. He may limit your access to other Christians. At times, He may take it away. But please understand, that's not the normal Christian life. And I think it's safe to say that if you're hearing this message, you're not part of one of those very rare exceptions to that principle. Body life, beloved, is not something that you and I can take or leave. And online church isn't church. Listening to sermons in your car, I highly commend it. It is a great way to spend your drive time. But it isn't church. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller cites an essay available in the library. Tim Keller cites an essay by C.S. Lewis titled Friendship. And in that essay, Lewis wrote about a marvelous friendship that he had in common with two men. One was J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings, whom Lewis knew as Ronald. And the, the third member of that little group was a brother named Charles Williams, who apparently had a very active sense of humor. After Williams went home to the Lord, Lewis wrote, Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Isn't that amazing? Keller finds a valuable lesson in that account about how God shows himself to us through each other in ways that we would never behold without each other. Keller says Lewis is saying it took a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus Christ? He says, Christians commonly say they want to get to know Jesus better. You will never be able to do that by yourself. You must be deeply involved in the church, in Christian community, with strong relationships of love and accountability. Only 
If you are part of a community of believers seeking to resemble, serve, and love Jesus, will you ever get to know Him and grow into His likeness? End quote. Now, if you think that's overstated, at least ponder it. Brothers and sisters, I have seen facets of the love of Christ in my amazing wife that I have never seen in anything approximating like measure in myself. And I have seen facets of the character of God in many of you that have graciously sorted me out when those same facets of God's character have been absent or very well hidden in my dealings with people in this body. I could give you examples, but we'd be here all day. See, when God brought me into everlasting union with Jesus Christ, He recreated me with a very deep-seated need for Christ in you. And when He recreated you and brought you into union with Christ, He did the same thing with you. However independent you were as an unbeliever, I can promise you on the the authority of Christ's own declaration, you're no longer independent. You've been made one part of an interdependent body that cannot rightly know and represent Christ in this world apart from one another. If you don't buy that yet, I would suggest you go immerse yourself in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They will sort you out. Whenever you run into a professing Christian who insists that the quote institutional church, I love that phrase, is too messed up for him or her to bother with, (laughs) that he can worship God better on his own without having to navigate all that hypocrisy and judgmentalism, When you run into a Christian who says things like that, beloved, God's handing you an assignment. After you send up a prayer for your own humility, perhaps you might say to that person, is the servant greater than the master? And when he asks you what the heck you're talking about, (laughs) ask him if the church he's referring to, that institutional church, is too messed up for Jesus to bother with. See, Jesus has been bothering with messed up sinners that He saved only by grace ever since He spent three agonizing years with these eleven men. The men who were with Him when He said these words. Men who were still selfishly jockeying for the highest position in His kingdom that very night. Men who would abandon Him that very night. One of whom would deny Him with curses that very night. Jesus went to the cross for them. And He promised that He would inhabit them and empower them and use them mightily all the days of their life on this earth. (laughs) So is the servant greater than the Master? Who are you not to bother with the bride of Christ? Brothers and sisters, if you love the groom, you love his bride. And this motley crew 
This is his bride. In groups like this all over the world. That's it. Always has been. If you're not loving the people of God with an active, devout, in the trenches, genuine love, you can count on the fact that there is something seriously lacking in your love for Jesus. In 1 John 5, verses 20 and 21, John gave this very forceful exhortation to the church, to people who had brothers in Christ. He said, we love because He first loved us. If, so, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If your place in the lives of the people sitting here with you this morning is a Sunday morning only proposition or maybe a one out of every four or five Sunday mornings proposition, if that's the sum total of your investment in the lives of the other sheep in this little flock into which God has placed you, you are not getting as much of the Christ that, that saved you as He intends for you to have and you are depriving your brothers and sisters of Christ in you. I said it before, we wake up every morning behind enemy lines and you don't want to do that by yourself. And you don't want your brother and sister to do that by themselves. There is no unity in isolation and there is no unity in untruth. It's no coincidence that just before Jesus prays that we, His people, may be one even as He and His Father are one, He says to His Father in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Everything he says then right after that about our unity together with one another and with God and Christ has to be seen in that context. There can be no unity in untruth. In fact, it's the truth, the one who is the truth, who makes us one. There are two essential errors on this particular front that <laughs> crept into the church a very long time ago and have never gone away. And they take all kinds of forms. They, they keep mutating in every generation. The first equates tolerance with unity and dispenses with truth. The second equates theological hair-splitting with truth and dispenses with unity. Let me briefly take those one at a time, and I won't exhaust either one by a long shot, but in their effort to make the Gospel more palatable to a world that worships tolerance, some Christians seem to think that we should never allow anything the Bible declares as true to drive a wedge between the church and the world. Of course, that would make Jesus' own ministry an epic failure, but never mind that. Some go so far as insisting it's more Christ-like today to show loving acceptance to a teenager who is resolved to undergo transgender surgery than it is to point out to that teenager that the only real well-being he will ever know will be found in trust and humble submission to the one who made him. The one who knows him way better than he'll ever know himself. That's just one extreme 
of the many radical departures from the truth that some are embracing in the name of expanding the reach of the gospel in a world that hates Christ. Beloved, Jesus is the stumbling block and you're not going to change that. If you try, you will throw the truth right out the window. This prayer dispenses with all such errors. Our union with Christ sets us radically apart from all that this world exalts and binds us up with the one who is truth. And it is only in that perfect truth revealed personally in Jesus and propositionally in His Word that we are made one. The second error that makes a wreckage of the link between truth and unity is just as pernicious as the first. And it was very prominent in Jesus' dealings with the religious people He encountered during His earthly ministry. In case you haven't noticed as we've been going through this Gospel, it wasn't the pagan Romans that Jesus had the harshest words for, was it? It was the religious Jews. It wasn't those who gave no thought to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that got the greatest browbeating from Jesus. It was those who considered them worthy, considered themselves to be worthy children of that very God. Those men could banter with each other all day long about truth, especially in the synagogues. They would pit one rabbi against another one and they go back and forth with that hour upon hour. But in the process, the truth that they completely missed was the truth, Jesus Christ. Jesus told them they didn't even know what truth was, that they were unable even to hear or recognize real truth because their father was the devil, the father of lies. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? Paul talks about what actually unites us in Ephesians 4. Right after he calls the church to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a very important call. Paul goes on to tell us what it is that makes that unity, that makes us one. He says, it was in one of our songs this morning, there is one body... In one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. You'll notice in that list that the propositional truths that unite us, one hope, one faith, are mixed right in with the relationships. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Together, these are the gifts that bind us with one another in our union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if the difference between your particular system of theology, certain details of that difference, put you at odds with certain details of the difference of, of, of the theological system of another brother or sister in this body to the extent that when you see him walking toward you in the hall, you feel the urge to duck and cover. You've got some reconciling to pursue.
You know how urgent that is? Jesus said, if, if you even suspect that your brother has something against you, don't bring your sacrifice to the altar. Let, leave the sacrifice there and go and reconcile with your brother. You know what that's called? That's called time urgency. You don't get to sleep on it. That's how important our unity is in the eyes of God. I'm talking to me here. God is talking to me here just as He is to you. According to 1 Corinthians 13, all faith and all knowledge are rendered null and void if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sit on that for a while. That brings us to the ramifications of this prayer for your relationship with the world. According to this prayer, our union together with one another in Christ puts us on one side of a pitched battle. (laughs) And it puts the whole world system and everybody who's allied with that world system on the other side of that same pitched battle. But instead of circling the wagons and doing our best to protect ourselves from whatever harm the world would like to do toward us, (laughs) the relationship to which we are called with the world is that of enemies loving our enemy. Enemies of the world loving our enemies. Precisely because Christ loved us when we were still His enemies. Romans 8. Uh, and, And what's the most loving thing that you and I will ever do for those who are still enemies of God? Now if you're prone to think the way I do, Your knee-jerk answer to that is going to be something like this. Share the Gospel with them and then show them the love of Christ. Surely that's got to be right. But this prayer changes that equation in one very critical aspect. Beloved, the most loving thing that you and I will ever do for those who are still enemies of God is to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them while we're loving each other with the love of Christ. And I'm not making this up. According to this prayer, how will the world come to know and believe that God the Father sent His Son Jesus into the world? Let me back this up and we can see it together. Verses 20-23, to I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these disciples, but for those also who believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know that You sent Me. The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may be made perfectly one. That's the literal translation. So that the world, so that the world may know that You sent Me, and that you loved them just as you loved me. So let me ask you again, what's the most loving thing that you will ever do for one who is still an enemy of God? Love them with the love of Christ? Or love the body of Christ with the love of Christ? Back in chapter 13, Jesus said to the disciples, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know who you are. 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We say, well, people will know who we are when we show them the love of Christ. You know what Jesus says? People will know who you are when you show each other the love of Christ. Now, we can frown at this and, and, and find this hard all day, but, but it doesn't change Jesus' words, does it? Are we going to live according to the Word or according to our, our own fancies about how this is all supposed to work? And this is not saying don't love the world, guys. But you cannot love someone who is outside of your union with Christ the way that you love those who are. It is not possible. The most powerful adornment of the message that we proclaim is the loving unity that we show to one another in Christ. And that means doesn't mean we're not supposed to love unbelievers. It means we are called to show the love of Christ to unbelievers in the context of our love for each other. If your approach to lost sinners does not make visible to this world the miraculous bond of love between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, a bond that you cannot possibly have with unbelievers, then your concept of evangelism doesn't quite line up with Jesus concept of evangelism. Lost souls need to see a oneness in you and me that they will never see anywhere else. And when they do, the Holy Spirit is going to do very powerful things. When I was 16 years old and my high school biology teacher coaxed me into going on a backpacking trip with a bunch of my other student fellow students, I didn't know that the trip was going to be sponsored by Camp Penile, a Christian camping organization. I didn't even know the PTA would go for something like that. I spent a week hearing the gospel, but you know what really blew my mind? I didn't walk away believing the gospel. But you know what blew my mind? was the way the believers interacted with the other believers. They were really good to me. They were very good to me, but man, there was something going on between them that I couldn't touch. And I wanted it. That was step one in a multi-phase strategy that Mike Turnage, my biology teacher, used as a very faithful instrument <laughs> to bring me to Christ. He died of brain cancer a year later. And I look forward to seeing him again. I believe that if our Western concept of rugged individualism tells us that evangelism is something we do for the most part separately rather than in community, with other believers, we need to ask ourselves how that can possibly match up with what Jesus is saying here. And we need to do some thinking and some praying about this. It's important. Finally, how your union with Jesus Christ completely and radically redefines your relationship with you. I strongly believe that the greatest shock to the system of most Christians by far, when they actually start living in this prayer, <laughs> is the radical redefinition of self that results from that union with Christ. That really should come as no big surprise to us, <laughs> considering that the very essence of the sin that destroyed man's union with God in the first place was a corrupted view of self. 
We exchanged the truth of God for a lie that we liked better than the truth of God, and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, starting with the creature called self. And you'll notice in Romans 1 in that passage that when it talks about the images that man made to serve as their gods, the first image is man. It was the death of man's humility before God that gave birth to sin, and it is the rebirth of true humility before God, dying to self in order to be alive to God that brings about true mortification of sin, the death of sin in the life of every believer. The indescribable gift of everlasting union with Jesus Christ turns your relationship with yourself inside out and right side up, and you never get to go back. And that's marvelous. Now listen on Friday to an excellent message again from Tim Keller called Gospel Identity. It's a recent series. Uh, Bob Deffenbaugh suggested to me because of its tie-in with this very prayer. At one point in that message, Keller observed that according to every other religion, philosophy, and culture in the entire history of humankind, a man's worth is achieved. But in Christ alone, a man's worth is received. And that's a very big difference. Your worth is received from Christ in your union with Christ. It is His worth imputed to you through your identification with Him. God looks at you as His redeemed child and all of the loveliness and all of the worthiness that He finds in you is the loveliness and the worthiness of Christ in you and you in Christ. Inseparably. That's it. It doesn't come from you. It's received. Colossians 3, Ron read from Colossians 2, the next chapter, verses 1 through 4, therefore if you have been raised up with Christ, you know where he's going to spend the rest of eternity pouring out the lavish grace upon you that he's got ready for you. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. Here's why. For you have died. It's good news. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. My brothers and sisters for eternity, every single thing that you need to know about you from now on is that the person you were apart from Christ has died. And your identity, your worth, indeed your very life is now completely bound up with Christ in God. And and that's 100% of what you need to know about you. 100%. I've said this before, but if you're a believer and you're still trying to find yourself, it's time for you to get lost. The only you that is worth finding is so bound up in Christ you don't even have an identity apart from Him. And there is no better news about you than that.
Every single person who belongs to Jesus by simple faith in Him should never spend another second agonizing over whether you are lovable enough for God to love. Of course you're not! If you were, Jesus died for nothing. If ever there was back page news, (laughs) it is that our unworthiness for God's amazing grace and love in Jesus Christ is an unchangeable fact. That's why it's amazing. (laughs) God declares with no ambiguity at all that if you believe that Jesus is who the Father says He is, and you trust that what Jesus did to save sinners, He did to save you, then you've had an identity change that can never be undone. You've died and your life is now bound up with God and Jesus Christ forever. God's love for you together with all of His redeemed is His love for His Son. It's a Godward love. And that means nobody can take it away from you. Nothing can ever separate us from that love because nothing can ever unbind us from Christ. Nothing. It's time for you to start believing that so you can get on with joyfully loving and worshiping and adoring and serving the One who loves you perfectly. I mentioned this last week. It was a blow-away verse. A verse that blows me away. First John 4.16, John says, we, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. That's the normal Christian life. Your union with Christ is your assurance of His unfailing and perfect love and it's your assurance of something else. It's your assurance of your powerful usefulness to God for the rest of your days on this earth. God didn't hold off spreading the flame of the Gospel until every last decaying vestige of the old sinful man in each of His disciples was no longer visible, did He? He took hold of those men by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and He started using them pretty much right away. See, the book of Acts is not about God using men and women who had it all together. It's about the God who holds all things together using men and women that He has graciously brought into union with Christ. Peter was still pretty much dense as a post for a long time to come. Kind of like me. Go look sometime at what it took for God to finally convince Peter and most of the early Jewish converts to Christ that God was actually going to save nasty old Gentiles too. But God started turning the Roman Empire upside down right away through Peter. And you know how that happened? Very simple. Christ in Peter, Peter in Christ. Kept and sanctified by the power of God in God's name, in God's Word, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, together with all the other saints that God put in Peter's life. Including one latecomer to the apostolic lineup named Paul. Read Galatians 2, you'll see what I'm talking about. And every bit of that was God's doing and none of it was Peter's doing. 
That's God's plan for you if you belong to Christ. He will take little things that you do, they look little to you, to proclaim and to represent Christ in this world and He will magnify them. And and when you come and stand before His throne in heaven, you're going to find out that He did things in the lives of the people around you that you had no idea He was doing. Everything that you need to know about your adequacy to advance the kingdom of God among men is that you have none. But the one who is now your life has all the adequacy required to use you and your fellow saints to accomplish that very marvelous mission of advancing His kingdom. Your life, your identity, your reason for drawing breath, your power, your usefulness, everything about you that matters at all is entirely and completely determined by your union with Jesus Christ together with all the saints forever. John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This last little thing is the most important thing you'll hear from me this morning, and I can say it without any fear of misrepresenting God because He's been very clear about it. What do inadequate people have to do to become useful? They have to be dependent on the one who's adequate. I'll tell you one other little story. I, the one person in my life, in my 61 years, who has uh, shown me what dependence, what humble dependence looks like in its joyful form more vividly than anyone else was a man named Keith Klaus. He died at a year before the age I am now, but the whole time, uh, he was not a quadriplegic the whole time he was on this earth. At one point he was very vigorous, but the whole time I knew him, he was a quadriplegic. One night I, I had to stand beside his hospital bed the entire night and make sure I didn't fall asleep because he had chemical pneumonia and they couldn't secure a mask to his face for his oxygen out of fear that he would again aspirate vomit and he would die from the exacerbation of that chemical pneumonia. So I spent the whole night keeping that mask on his face. That was while he was asleep. For a good part of the time he was awake. And this guy was the most gracious, most gentle-spirited, most good-humored, most loving person you will ever meet in the middle of that. And you know what else he was? He was the most dependent person I've ever rubbed shoulders with. See, when you're a quadriplegic, you don't have a really big concept of independence. But what Keith had was a freedom that was absolutely beautiful. And it's the freedom that comes only with humility that is willing to be dependent. And his greatest dependence by far was on the God who had saved him. He was one of the most effective Christians I ever met in terms of his usefulness to God. His funeral was a marvelous testimony to the greatness of our God. His strength is perfected in our weakness so that all the glory will go to Him. And that means 
He's going to make us dependent. That's a very great blessing. When your worth is something you receive and not something you achieve, you will always be dependent. In John 15, Jesus said to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For, listen to this, apart from me, you can do nothing. So beloved, how do you and I live the Christian life miraculously well? Paul nailed it in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, there's only one way I live it. I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. There you have it. The greatest joy you will ever know will come as you're willing to be nothing but an empty vessel filled up to overflowing with Christ, lovingly nudging over the other vessels around you to make them empty, help them become empty so they can be filled up to overflowing too. That is the beating heart of real life. Loving Father, teach us to live and breathe and serve in this glorious prayer, bound together with one another forever as joint heirs of the living God and the One who is our life. It is in His incomparable name that we pray. Amen.